Well, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 uh, will be picking up in verse 10 this week uh, as we continue our way through the book of Ephesians together. Now, as you're turning there, uh, once you arrive, uh, you may notice that we are on the final page of the book of Ephesians, uh, or the last couple of pages, depending on how your Bible's formatted. But today we reach the end of this letter that we have been reading together for the past uh, 10 weeks. This is week 11, uh, reading through this letter together. Now, I don't know about you, but endings can be very difficult for us. Endings can be very difficult for us. I mean, how many books have you started but not finished? Or how many projects have you begun but never completed? Right? We have a difficult time with endings. Think about how we treat the end of life. In our culture, uh, we're incredibly uncomfortable with this, right? We, we relegate the end of life to nursing homes and hospitals far away from our everyday worlds that we live in. And we often uh, try to avoid going near cemeteries, right? We have a difficult time with endings. And yet, uh, we relish in beginnings. We love beginnings. You know, we love buying new things, right? I mean, it's, this, this week is Black Friday, right? All sorts of people are going to be going out to buy all kinds of new things. Uh, in, in about a month or so, folks are going to be making all kinds of New Year's resolutions, right? We love beginnings and, and new things. We love the warm, fuzzy feelings of a new romance. We celebrate new babies and even continue to celebrate birthdays every year. We love beginnings, but we have a difficult time with endings. And I think often the same thing is true in our spiritual life, right? We celebrate baptisms. We love the fiery spiritual high of new faith. And yet often, just like unfinished books or incomplete projects, our faith grows cold and fades out somewhere along the way. And too often, churches are actually complicit in, in this way of being, right? Uh, Eugene Peterson, author and, and, and pastor, described churches as often being experts in the labor and delivery of being born again in Jesus but then end up being novices and actually growing into maturity in Christ, right? Too often churches have focused entirely on spiritual birth at the neglect of spiritual growth. And I think this is because we love starting, but have a really hard time finishing. We love beginnings, but are really unsure about endings. And so it's appropriate that here, at the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us a strong word about staying the course, about continuing in God. 
And it could be really easy to miss. I mean, think about the letter as a whole that we've read so far over these last couple of months. Paul began by describing all of these incredible things that God has been working from before the foundation of the world. It says back in chapter 1, and his goal was to gather up all things in Christ. And so as we've read, we've seen that while sinners have been gathered up to God, made alive together with Christ, we've seen that Jews and Gentiles have been gathered up in Christ and made into this one new community, the church. We've, we've seen everyday life being gathered up into ongoing times of, of worship, prayer, thanksgiving. Last week, we read about how wives and husbands, children and parents, even slaves and masters have been gathered up in Christ in equal dignity and mutual service of one another. You see, God has accomplished all of these things. So what else is there to do? But here, at the end of the letter, Paul reminds us that there is still an enemy at large. There is still work to be done. But as we read, we'll find that it's not the work we expect. It is altogether different than what our natural inclinations would be. And so let's read together Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. And with all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. 
so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus will tell you everything. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. And so peace be to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the word of your scripture and for this encouragement to stand in you. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of this passage, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so in this final part of the letter, Paul describes warfare, right? He describes warfare. I mean, he's given us all of these different images of what it means to be the church. He's talked about the church as a body. He's talked about the church as a building, the temple. He's talked about the church as a society that, that you become a citizen of. He's talked about the church as a, a husband and wife, right? A, a group of people, community of people married to God. And here, he describes the church once more as a, a band of, of military ready to go, right? He describes this warfare image. But it's not the warfare that we expect or imagine. At each moment along the way in this passage, Paul counters our usual ideas of war. You know, as, as I reflected on this passage this week, uh, I was reminded of a story of Jesus just before the crucifixion. Jesus is, is in the garden praying with his disciples, and then Judas shows up with that band of people uh, ready to capture Jesus. And they lay their hands on Jesus, and in Matthew 26, it describes, Suddenly, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You see, Jesus' followers were armed and ready to fight for him. But in that moment, Jesus makes it clear, this is a different kind of battle. And it will be fought in a different way, with different kinds of weapons. A little bit later on, Jesus is in custody, and he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate's asking him all these questions, and Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. 
You see, the kingdom of God is a different kind of kingdom. And so our battle is a different kind of battle. And this is what Paul describes here at the end of Ephesians. There is work to be done, but it's not what you expect it to be. It's not against who you expect it to be, and it's not done the way that we would expect it to be. So these are the things that I want to look at together today. What, who, and how. Right? What do we engage in this battle? Who is this battle against? And how are we to do this? What, who, and how? And so we can start with that question, what? And Paul gets right off to it in verses 10 and 11. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Right? Throughout this whole section, we are commanded again and again and again to stand this command to stand appears four times. We see it there in verse 11. We see it twice in verse 13 to withstand on that day, to stand firm, and then repeated again in verse 14. He says, stand therefore, and goes on to list the different pieces of armor, right? Stand is the verb used again and again and again throughout this section of the passage. Now, as I've been reading through Ephesians, one of the, the partners I've been reading with is, is a Chinese minister named Watchman Nee. He lived in the early 20th century and, and planted hundreds of churches in China uh, against all odds and against all kinds of persecution. And so if anyone knows uh, what it is to stand against the evil one, by all means, he does. And he's written this little book uh, that describes the book of Ephesians. Uh, and and he, he looks through the book of Ephesians and he describes the whole book in three words. He describes the entire book of Ephesians in three words, three verbs. Sit, walk, stand. Sit, walk, stand. He begins at the beginning of Ephesians where it says that Christ has been raised over all and Christ is seated over all the powers and, and principalities and authorities in heaven. And then Christ has, we have been made alive together with Christ. And it says we too have been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And so we begin this journey in, in the book of Ephesians sitting with Christ in the heavenly places. And this is how we begin our lives in Christ. Not working, not walking, not, not running after stuff, but sitting and receiving all the blessings that God has for us. But then from sitting, we move to walking. And we saw this as we read through in chapters 4 and 5. Again and again, Paul uses this word walk to describe our everyday lives. He begins chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy to which you have been called. And multiple times throughout chapter 4 and again at the beginning of chapter 5, he encourages us to walk in Christ. And so we go from sitting to walking as the blessings we receive in Christ begin to work themselves out in our lives as we walk and live 
But then ultimately, the book of Ephesians moves to this final section in which we are told to stand before the enemy. Stand before the evil one. We see this again and again. Now, what does that word stand mean for us? Well, Watchman Nee gives a really great description. He says, it is not a command to invade a foreign territory. Warfare in modern parlance would imply a command to march. Armies march into other countries to occupy and to subdue. God has not told us to do this. We are not to march, but to stand. The word stand implies that the ground disputed by the enemy really belongs to God. And therefore, it is God's. It is ours as we are in God. And so we need not struggle to gain a foothold on it. He describes that Christ has already won. Christ has already fought and already won. And so we do not need to fight to obtain the ground that we're standing on. We need only to hold it against all challengers. Our task is one of holding, not of attacking. And so again and again, we are told to stand. And this goes against all of our inclinations. When we think about warfare, we think we got to get ready for battle. We got to suit up and go out. But Paul says, no, you are to stand firm. The moment you try to, to make your own move in this, you've lost. But in Christ, we can stand secure. We can stand firmly on the ground that Christ has already won and purchased by his blood. And so this is what we do. We're a people not who attack, not who fight, but who stand. And so who are we standing against? Well, this is what Paul goes on to answer in the next verse. In verse 12, he says, Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And again, this runs against all of our inclinations of what it means to be at war, right? Our inclination is to fight whatever we can see, whatever's in front of us. Just like that disciple who cut off someone's ear, we go chopping away at whatever is in front of us. And today, we like to think of ourselves as so much more civilized. But we still have a tendency to go attacking Whatever's right in front of us. Maybe it's not with a sword or a knife. But just think about the past few months and this wild and crazy election season that, that our country is, has just passed through. Right? And it doesn't matter which side people are on. The other side is clearly the spawn of Satan and must be taken down and defeated. Right? I mean, this is how our world functions. And unfortunately, much of our country has confused Christian identity 
with political party. But this is not the kind of kingdom that we are standing for. Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, right? It's not against soldiers on a battlefield. It's not against politicians in the news. Rather, our battle, our struggle, our stand is against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our calling is not in military battles or political elections, but rather our calling is to outshine darkness with the light of Christ. Now, what exactly are these rulers and powers and authorities that Paul is talking about? Well, Eugene Peterson, I mentioned him earlier, he offers some really helpful insight on this. He points out that earlier in the letter of Ephesians, Paul is shot pretty straight about sin. He's been pretty frank about things that are wrong, things that are evil, things that are sinful. At the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5 especially, Paul offers up all kinds of lists of sin, right? He talks about impurity, lust, falsehood, stealing, evil talk, slander, fornication, greed. The list goes on. And many of these are pretty obvious. Many of these things are things that we can clearly identify as evil, as wrong. Most everyone agrees that these things are wrong, and they're pretty easy to spot, even if they're not easy to stop doing. These things are evil, but they're overt, right? They're they're things that that we do, things that, that happen. But the powers and the principalities, they're more subtle. They're not as overt as those sins that Paul just quickly says, yeah, don't do those. The enemy that Paul writes about here is subtle. It's something that we may not even notice. And so Eugene Peterson writes about this. He says, we need deliverance from evil that doesn't look like evil. Evil that we're not even likely to recognize as evil. There is far more that is wrong with the world than the sum total of what we name as sin and sins. There is evil that is impossible to pin on an individual or even a group of individuals. There is an evil that that rarely looks like evil. And so it's this subtle, subversive thing that it's hard to put our finger on. But we know it's there. And in verse 11, Paul uses a word that helps us begin to put our finger on this elusive form of evil. He tells us to stand against the wiles of the devil. Other translations say the schemes of the devil. And the word that he uses here. And the Greek is the word methodia. Methodia. And it's where we get our word method. Right? So a lot of times evil is seen not overtly in what is being done, but subtly in the way that it's being done. We live in a society 
where often the ends justify the means, right? That's what people live by. It's like, well, whatever I got to do to get things done. But the means, the method, is the place where the evil one gets involved. The devil is in the details, as they say, right? And so our stand is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But also, it's not only against overt sins, wrongdoing, but it's these subtle evils that slowly work their ways into our life, our methods, and corrupt all that we do. So this is the what that we're standing against. Or this is rather the who that we're standing against. The what is that we are called to stand. The who is that this thing is, is powers, it's principalities, it's this subtle thing that we can't quite put our finger on. And so how? How do we stand against this, this evil one who is so subtle and so hard to recognize? Well, again, it's not the kind of war that you would expect just like our enemy is not flesh and blood, neither are our tools physical weapons. The imagery he uses is all external, right? He talks about the belt, the breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, sword. These are all external things. But the reality that he is describing is all internal. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith salvation, spirit. We don't fight with weapons. Rather, we fight with character. It is not with what we have, but rather who we are in Christ. This is how we confront the evil one. This is how we stand against the evil one. And so I don't have nearly enough time to walk through this whole list here. Uh, earlier this year when we were doing Sunday morning Zoom meetings, we, we spent one week with each of them, right? But I'll just quickly read through this list and just say a little bit about each one of them. We begin with the belt of truth. And, and, and this belt of truth, the word truth doesn't just mean uh, something that is true, but it's also a character trait, someone who is true. Someone who's honest. Someone who's filled with integrity. This is one of the ways that we stand against the enemy, by being people of integrity. This is a character trait. Uh, if you don't have that belt of truth, of integrity on, then I, I've heard it said before, your pants are going to fall down, you're going to trip all over yourself. So we have to have integrity. The belt of truth is what allows us to move freely to stand firmly. And then there's the breastplate of righteousness. And again, th this is a word that, that is often, you know, kind of churchy or, or, or you know, what do we mean by righteousness? And, and there, there's something about the way that, that we have been made righteous in Christ. He has forgiven us of our sins. Uh, and we stand before him righteous, forgiven. But that word righteous uh, is also the word for justice. It's the very same word in Greek. There's no difference between righteousness and justice. And so to, to wear the breastplate of righteousness is to have the character 
of justice, to be someone who defends the weak, who protects those who are in need, who is intent upon the world being made right. This is what it is to, to have the breastplate of righteousness. Not just to be someone who doesn't sin, but to be someone who stands for justice. And then we have the shoes. The shoes of readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace. And this reemphasizes once again that our call is to stand, not to fight. Right? These shoes are shoes that make us ready not to run off and, and fight someone, but shoes that, that are ready to stand and proclaim the gospel of peace. And to proclaim the gospel of peace means that to our enemies, we proclaim love. And to the enemy, we proclaim defeat. That Christ has won. And so we don't need to fight anymore. We don't need to fight with one another. We don't need to fight the enemy. We need only stand. These are the shoes that we wear, ready to proclaim peace rather than fight. And then there's the shield of faith. Again, another kind of churchy religious word. What does this mean, faith? Well, the word faith does mean the, the things that we, we use it to describe, this, this description of what we believe, of, of, of who we are. But, but it's much deeper than that in Scripture. The word faith might even be better translated as the word trust. The shield of trust. And so those fiery darts that come at us, those fiery flaming arrows, those are doubts. Those are fears. These things that lead us to be suspicious of God. It's the same tactic that the enemy used in the garden back at the beginning, whispering words of doubt and fear. But faith, trusting God, is a shield for us. We trust in God. This is what protects us from all doubts, all fears. And then we have the helmet of salvation. Another fairly religious word, salvation. We don't use that word very much outside of a church building. But salvation really is not a religious word that is meant to talk about going off to heaven someday. Rather, it's actually a military word, a warfare word that means rescue, that means deliverance, that means victory. This is what the word salvation means. Victory. Not just some far-off future victory, but a present reality that we live in. Right? It is because God has rescued us that we can stand secure now. It's because God rescued us that we can stand secure, and it's because we wear this helmet of victory that we can hold our heads high as we stand against the evil one. This victory is something that we celebrate every week as we come around the table together and remember Jesus' body and his blood. We remember his death and his resurrection. Jesus is victorious. He is alive. 
And at this table each week, we proclaim that he will come again. This is the helmet of salvation that we wear. Victory in Christ. And then finally, there's the sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive item on the list, right? Everything else that we've read about is for defense, enabling us to stand. But I think it's curious that the one offensive item on the list is also the only one that directly describes God, the Holy Spirit. God is the one who fights for us. God is the one on the offense, not us. We're called to stand. It's the Spirit who fights. It's God who wins the victory. And so he describes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And a lot of times we stop there, but he doesn't. He goes on to also say, pray in the Spirit at all times. And so we engage the Holy Spirit by listening to God's Word and then by responding in prayer. We take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we pray in the Spirit. This is the way that we're transformed into a people who can stand. And Paul has demonstrated this again and again as we have read through the letter. At the very beginning, he, he speaks of all of God's blessings, and then he prays for the people. And then right there in the middle of the letter, at the end of chapter 3, he references this mystery of, of the gospel, the, the word of God. And then at the end of the chapter 3, he prays once more over the people. And so here again, at the very end of the book, Paul speaks of the word of God and then of prayer. These go hand in hand. We engage with the sword of the Spirit, both by listening to the word of God and by responding in prayer. And so the sword of the Spirit helps us to stand, not as we swing it around, wielding it at the enemy, but rather as it shapes and transforms us through the word and through prayer. We're the ones transformed by the Spirit. And so these are the tools with which we stand. All character, truth, righteousness, justice, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Spirit of God. These are the tools with which we stand. They're not external weapons, but rather internal character. Who we are. This is how we engage. And so we've talked about what, who, and how, right? Instead of attacking, we stand. Instead of flesh and blood, there's a subtle spiritual enemy. And instead of doing all of this with, with physical weapons, we do this with our character. So there's one more question I think worth asking 
And that's the question, well, where? Where do we do all of this? Where do we live this out? Where do we do this work of standing against the enemy? Well, the answer, I think, is in these final few verses of the book. The final few verses, Paul gives some personal words. And he mentions a name, Tychicus. And it's easy to just brush past the names that often appear throughout the Bible, particularly at the end of Paul's letters. He's pretty much done writing, so we can stop reading, right? But this name is a reminder that everything that Paul has written here is not just a good idea, but something that he has lived with people. And this is a, a letter that was actually delivered by a person to a real community of people. You know, he tells uh, them to receive Tychicus, and he says, Tychicus will tell you everything, so that you might know how I am and, and what I'm doing. Tychicus will tell you everything. You see, there, there's all sorts of stuff written in Scripture that, God, that, that uh, Paul has written here in this letter. But there is so much more of life that's lived beyond these pages. That's the everything that Tychicus told them. You know, what it is to be the people of God is not just people who gather around for worship services and reading things together and singing psalms, reciting psalms, whatever that might be, right? Someday, many, many years from now, someone might dig up these video recordings or audio recordings of sermons and services that we've held, but that doesn't capture our life that we share in Christ. You see, that's the everything that Tychicus comes to share. All of this is lived out together. Beyond the formal gatherings, beyond the, the, the meetings, beyond all of this, it's lived out in everyday life, in relationships with one another, with our neighbors, with our friends, and even with our enemies, as we love them. And so this is lived out as Paul writes in this final blessing, in the whole community. That's who he blesses, the whole community. This book of Ephesians is a call to community as we stand and continue on.